0: Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back, personal candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice, hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Rabbi Adam Greenwald and I have known each other for years, and it's great coming back to being in community together ever since I returned to Los Angeles. It's also great watching him thrive as the now Vice President for Jewish Engagement at the American Jewish University, where he has a huge role in running the Miller Introduction to Judaism program. I wanted to sit down with my friend Adam and talk to him about life as a non-pulpit rabbi in this usually richly diverse Jewish environment of Pico Robertson here in Los Angeles Uh, that's changed so much over the past several months. We talked about The dearth of spontaneity in the world these days, and what it feels like to want to be missed from your usual spots in the spiritual universe. It was a great conversation. I'm excited for you to continue. As you listen to this conversation, are you coming back with Rabbi Adam Greenwald? Thanks for sitting down in conversation with me today. I'm really excited to have you here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, you know, we don't always get a chance to connect with each other, either on professional or personal uh, levels these days, because COVID and family, but um, this is a conversation I was really excited to invite you to.
1: Well, and thank you. And and I got to say, you know, I think among the many colleagues in Los Angeles, you are one of the ones who goes out of your way to reach out and check in. I still remember you dropped off food when we had a baby and um, have checked in when I've posted things on Facebook haven't been great. You're, you're really wonderful about that. And so um, I, I feel like even though we haven't seen each other in person in a long time, I, I, I still feel very close and I, I appreciate how great you are.
0: Thanks. I appreciate the same. And it's, it's really nice to watch also um, somebody else in the Los Angeles area who I've known for a while who is you know, trying to build, like not just thriving in a career, but trying to build. So I know you're going to kind of have the hat on in this conversation of that professional mindset, just because you always do. I'd love to hear if things pop into mind, but we're really here to talk about what this period, this era has been for you spiritually and what might happen next <laughs> so i i like to start this conversation by asking you to take me back like a year you know this time 2019 a different uh, a different time altogether for you personally a different time altogether for this universe um maybe take me back to like synagogue shabbat morning for you maybe a memory of a holiday or what that was like give me a sense of the sights and the sounds that were essential Um, you can go full biopic on me and take me back like years but even just a year ago what was jewish and spiritual life for you on the regular
1: a year ago in a completely different world Um, so we, uh, we have an 18 month old, almost 18 month old Gracie. Um, and because of just the way that the timing of the pandemic happened, uh, you know, the first six months of new parenthood are so upside down entirely. And I don't entirely remember all of those first six months because if you don't sleep, you don't form memories. Um, and so it was just around January that for the first time we were getting Enough sleep that, like, it wasn't, didn't feel dangerous to drive. And we were starting to go back out into community and get into the rhythm of taking her with us. And, um, and we had like two months of that. And then the world changed. So, you know, there was that real sweet moment between January and March when, for the first time, we could like take her. I remember my wife and I went to one of our favorite restaurants and didn't have babysitters so we just took the baby in her carrier and we sat with her there and rocked her and she was good and we ate a meal and it was so wonderful Um, but only have had that very short window in now a year and a half uh, in which that's been possible and one of the things you know you asked to go back to Jewish community I always wanted to raise a like a village baby I really wanted, and part of the appeal of the work that we do um, is that integration into a bigger community where our kids can be by it. Like they can really feel like they are at home um, in these gathering places. I'm not a congregational rabbi, but I feel very integrated into our shul communities. Um, And I say communities plural because there are a number of wonderful places where we feel at home. and I loved in those few months when we could when could come as a proud new dad and and pass around the baby to all of these people who wanted to love on her, and I would walk in the door and and nobody cared about me; they only just like went straight for yes. the baby <laughs> um and one by one, you know all of these women and not a few men um would you know pick her up and hold her for ten minutes and then pass her to the next one and the next one and the next one, and I just I just loved all of these surrogate aunties and uncles. And I got to say what I've been missing the most in the last nine months, whatever it is, is that for her. Like, I'm, I'm sorry that she's not getting that. And I'm sorry for me also that, uh, that I, I just took so much joy in watching the joy that she brought. And I miss that.
0: Yeah. Live reactions of people to a baby being in the room is great. Like now the equivalent of that is, uh, is like a cat walking on screen or, you right. know, or like when the kid wanders into your meeting. Um, but it's not, it's not the same as being touched and held and, um, the sights and smells and sounds of community. Um,
1: yeah. Mm. And there's, I mean, there, are those those sort of happy accidents, right? The, the, the animal wanders onto the screen or the kid wanders onto the screen but so much it feels like our covid world is devoid of serendipity it's devoid of those sort of i bumped into this person at the supermarket and we had a few minutes to catch up or we just sort of in in work life certainly i was used to wandering down the hall and walking into a colleague's office and chatting a little bit about work and also chatting a little bit about life and then wandering back to my desk and doing some more work. Um, and now everything has to be scheduled and regimented. And when do you appear on the screen? Um, there's, there's not the possibility for those kind of random easy moments that, uh, that were so much of, of work life. There's so much of Jewish community life. Um, So much just life.
0: (laughs) It's so funny that you frame the spontaneity in that way, because Lahavdil, I mean, really quite the other end of the spectrum. But that reminds me of a story. I don't know if you have ever heard it, of the guy who reinvented what life would be like in nursing homes and aging facilities nowadays. Mm -hmm. And the story goes something like, I think this was a This American Life episode, but it goes something like, once... He was in a nursing home, and a bird flew in, and he noticed that the spontaneity totally brought the residents who were hanging around to life. So Mm. he had this theory, I think he was a neurologist, he had a theory that spontaneity was a thing that would actually be life-prolonging and vivifying for the residents in a home. Mm. So he decided that he was going to bring parakeets in, and parakeets in cages, and the parakeets and the cages arrived on the same day to the facility, like a 100 of them, but the cages came unassembled. But the parakeets had to be dropped off. So they stuck the parakeets <laughs> inside the salon at the nursing home, and then they had to run in and one by one grab the parakeets as they assembled these cages. And he said that day, watching the residents watch the parakeets fill the salon was the most life-filled day he'd ever seen. And he knew. He knew he'd hit on something. So – it reminds me so much of this of this incredible point that you're bringing up, which is that like spontaneity, which seems like the paradigmatic opposite of ritual, but it's not. It's like mm-hmm. a part of ritual is what happens spontaneously within it. It's just missing. I hadn't thought mm-hmm. about that at all. And you're right. Everything is calculated. You don't bump into people.
1: You know, it's um, – I- most of my rabbinate is teaching. As you know, I, I run the the Miller Introduction to Judaism program at HAU, and I I teach all of these classes. And for months and months, um, in the first in the spring and over the summer, I would sign up for my class and just have this nagging feeling of failure, like that didn't go how I thought it would go, and I couldn't quite figure it out. Like what what was it that wasn't connecting? Um And I talked to a coworker who I trust so much um who just has these wonderful these wonderful insights, and what she said was, You were experiencing all of the parts of a class that you are good at but not great at like you you can deliver content and you are good at delivering content you're not bad at it at all. but she said, What your superpower is um is that you have a capacity to make people feel at home and comfortable and to build meaningful relationships in a classroom. Mm. She said, that's what you're really good. You're not the most dynamic lecturer in the whole world. And she's right. I'm not. Um, but I am pretty good at translating those classroom experiences into relationships which stick. You know, my, my friends have been my students and I don't know that that's always true um, for everybody. And, and, and that's impossible right now. That's impossible. And, and she said, so what you're feeling is you're feeling like you're getting a B plus because you're doing your job, but you're missing the thing which you could do before, which elevated it from doing a job to, to a calling. Well, I hope that doesn't sound braggy. Like that, that you know, I, I have this thing that I'm really good at. Um, I do think it's it's one of the things that I bring to the table when I teach. I think it's something that you very very much bring to your work that that you are so real. You 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 carry no pretense, Hillary. Like um, and people respond to that. And so there are plenty of rabbis and cantors who are up on the bema who nobody would want to come up to a kiddush unless they have to. And if they did, they do in, you know a very nervous and deferential way. I think you invite relationship. Um, and how are we supposed to invite relationship through a screen?
0: That's an, an excellent point, and I do miss mostly people coming up to me at kiddish. And
1: the <laughs> mostly, <relationship. laughs> I
0: mo- mostly, um, I I do miss the the spontaneity of interaction, and you describe so well that that feeling of inadequacy that can come in the professional realm. What do you, what do you think the personal equivalents i'm sure there are multiple ones of that are what do you think is persistently good but not great right not terrible but what's good but not great for you in doing jewish lately
1: i don't know if i you know i don't know if this is what you want to hear in this conversation um but i I've really dropped off from virtual synagogue service participation. Uh, I really, I'm a rabbi who doesn't get that much from davening most of the time. It's not my, it's it's not my number one place of connecting Jewishly. I, I, I like Jewish prayer, um, but I like study more. Um, learning is more a place of connecting. And I like, just the sort of communal experience more saying the words has always been something that, that's been a bit of a struggle for me. And so, you know, synagogue without, without the opportunity to kibitz and without the feeling of the people around, um, where it's just sort of distilled down to the prayer. Um, I find really challenging. And I guess if I find it challenging as somebody who has a graduate degree in this and has dedicated life to this, I got to imagine it's really challenging for other people too. Um, So, you know, I did love, there were some really sweet moments over the high holidays. I served between three different congregations. First of all, the fact that I could do that was amazing. Um, And to see three different places where I feel at home and three different uh, spiritual leaders who have been my teachers, and there 's no other world in which that would have been possible um, and uh, and that was lovely and there were a few moments when it felt like even apart we were together, uh, but they were they were flashes rather than that sustained thing um, good, good, not great.
0: Yeah. And I love that you touched on this idea, which I spoke to Yehuda Kurtzer a little bit about a few of these Are You Coming Back conversations ago, which is what What do you expect your privilege of Jewish literacy to give you? And it just doesn't. Right? You have mm-hmm. access to anything and everything in mm. terms of what's on paper, like literally, you know, right. you could crack any door and and, and open up new Jewish spirituality uh, stuff, except that you can't conjure, it sounds like, the element that made it.
1: Yeah, I love that question. Um, I think there are, there are lots of barriers to prayer. Jewish prayer is hard. Yeah. Um, uh, has a name have a really hard job to figure out how to translate this for people. Um, And for some people, the barrier to Jewish prayer is literacy and Hebrew and knowing the words. Um, I am privileged in that I've gotten to spend enough time studying that that's no longer a barrier. It was a barrier for many years, um, but that's no longer really a barrier. Um, But, you know, for me, in order to feel, I was, I wasn't raised in a, in a, God household. Um, I was raised in a very culturally Jewish household. Um, we made Shabbat every week. We were participants in our little Havara style synagogue. Um, but I don't remember a single conversation with my parents growing up about God um, ever. And so it, it, it was my third year of rabbinical school, I think, maybe my second year of rabbinical school, when one of my professors pulled me aside and and said to me very sweetly, You know, you need to come up with a theology if you're going to be a rabbi. Um, Like, you need to to have spent some time thinking about God because it just really wasn't part of my formative Jewish experiences. Um, And so I figured out how to be good with God on the level that works for me. But it's not not innate to me. Spirituality and belief is not innate to me. Um, It's not part of my growing up experience. It's not in my DNA. Um, I have to work to have the feeling that somebody is listening when I pray. And I know plenty of people who know less Hebrew, but who have that innate sense of connection, right? Who just know that God is present with them and they may stumble over the words, but they know somebody's listening. And so I have all the privilege in the world to be able to read the words, um, but I need the assist on the believing part on the connecting part, and that assist for me comes from being in the presence of other people. It comes from the holistic experience, and so, you know, praying on my own has always been hard, and and praying, you know, through a Zoom screen helps a little bit, um, but uh, but it's not it's not enough for me. Despite all of my Hebrew literacy and 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 Tefillah literacy,
0: have you found anything in this time? That you think has been a salve for the stuff that's missing, like tried something new, either in prayer life or just home life. You know, something at the Shabbos table, or or to to do in your Jewish routine that that fills some of the void of what we can't do nowadays.
1: Well, first of all, my baby. I mean, it, right? Like, um, there there is no other world in which. I would have been present for her first steps and her first words. That's, that's true. Like uh, my wife works as a consultant and works mostly from home. And the understanding was that she would be more on with the baby because her work was more flexible. And I, in the before times, you know, spend an hour in a commute each day and eight hours at least at the office. And I would have missed all of that. And so the fact that for some time every day I like sit in the yard with my daughter, and just enjoy the sunshine and watching her grow, is is gorgeous. And there's no other there's no other universe where that would have happened in this way. And I'm grateful for that. And and Jewishly, you know, I I I did enjoy being able to participate in multiple different services over the hagim, and I do enjoy. In my classes, this diversity of students who can now join because of the reach. Um, When we transitioned all of our classes online, all of a sudden people from across the United States and frankly from across the world found them and said, well now I can do this. And so in my Intro to Judaism classes right now I have a couple who joins from Japan and a pastor from the Philippines um, and an English teacher in Saudi Arabia who needs to join through a VPN because I think it's illegal to take classes in Judaism in Saudi Arabia um, and uh, a couple in Zurich and and they're all joining in. And it's like, that's that's amazing. And it's amazing to get their perspectives. Um, And that's the piece, you know, I know we're going to talk about, like, how do we go back? That's that level of interconnectivity. I don't imagine giving up. For hyperlocality, um, how if Temple Beth Am can be a place that can serve people around the globe? How do you go back to only serving people in Pika Robertson? Uh, the same with with the introduction to Judaism program. I, I I don't I don't know how that would work.
0: Yeah i i i I feel like I'm um philosophically participating in an ongoing analysis of what our universe is right now by constantly revisiting some of these questions that I'm, I'm throwing out to you, but also reading what other folks have to say about it. And there was a great Jewish philanthropic organization, if I think of the article itself, I'll stick it in the show notes. Um, and, uh, and they spoke of something that's a cousin to an idea that I've been circling around. So uh, he wrote about the idea of that equity of quality. So that for the first time, we're facing this idea that people are are accessing quality, his, his example is quality mm-hmm. synagogue services, but I might offer, you know, back an example, like, f- people are for the first time accessing equitably the quality of uh, intro to Judaism programs that are as completely and thoroughly cultivated as the Miller programs is, which is just a different level than, let's say, an individual synagogue or an individual rabbi or cantor might have developed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been more broadly thinking about this idea as just equity of access, which is an expansion on globalization, you know, the way that you described it, like, what we give up glo- globalism for a return to hyperlocality, which is actually a mainstay of Jewish Practice right hyperlocality—the mm-hmm. idea that we literally locate ourselves nearby enough to walk to our synagogues when it's a festival right. or, or Sabbath. So, um, I wonder about that that equity of access and your your light reference to your having enjoyed other places. Like, how are you experiencing the equity of access? Do You tune in other places to check out what their I don't know what their intro to Judaism classes are, what their Shabbat services are. Well, What's interesting to you out there?
1: Yeah. Um, I haven't stalked anybody else's intro to Judaism class, um, but <laughs> now that you mention it, maybe that would be fun. Um, yeah. It, it. I mean, we are so privileged in Los Angeles with the amount that we have. And, and I, as a non-congregational clergy person, like you have a place where you have to be on Shabbat. I don't. Um, by and large, I can be anywhere. And so... Um, I have taken advantage, uh, more so pre-baby, but I've taken advantage of the fact that like I could go here or I could go there and I could check out different things. Um, But if you live in in fill-in-the-blank, someplace far from a Jewish community like L.A.'s or New York's or a handful of others, all of a sudden you do have this incredible access. Um, And on one hand, that's really good in a democratizing way. On the other hand, um, I don't know. I'm not I'm not so comfortable with sort of a capitalist approach to shul and synagogue and rabbi where the best will rise to the top and will get the viewership and mm-hmm. you know the the weak will fall away. Like that's a I, I understand the logic of that, And I understand what might drive an individual to say, well, if I never really liked my local synagogue rabbi and I can have my choice of anyone in the country, if my husband has never really done it for me, but I can listen to Hillary Chorney Davin, like, I'm going to do that. Um, but that's not, it's not the values we've constructed our community around. We've, we've. Constructed our community around the values of, um, of, of as you say, the, 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 uh, some element of locality, that, that it, it matters who are your people. Um, and I mentioned I grew up in a, a Havara kind of synagogue. We were a 30-family minion um, that met in the fireside room of a Lutheran church. And we had a quarter-time rabbi. Um, and it was, you know, we referred to ourselves as a sort of dysfunctional family, which we were right and there were it was a sort of weird place to be, and everybody was a little bit quirky um and we had this sort of parade of part time clergy um, but there was something really beautiful about this little experiment that um was my home base through my childhood and 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 the same for many, many other people in a world in which that needed to compete against every other bigger and better organized synagogue, um, I don't imagine that this little mom and pop show, like we we would have gotten eaten up by whatever's the Amazon equivalent.
0: Right. And if you were in this time to discover a new community that moved you somehow more than even local communities, I don't know how that's possible in Peter Robertson, but um, somehow I I kid, I mean, like there, there are extraordinary communities you might discover through the digital window to other jewish worlds but when covid's over you can't pass gracie around at kiddish in the shul in texas that you discovered right. online right and so i'm thinking back to those comments that you made at the beginning which is right. you know missing the spontaneity and the physicality of being in local community Um, I wonder, I wonder if you, I wonder if generally people are trying to imagine themselves in the room. And even if you're not thinking about that consciously, if the fact that you can't really imagine that you're in that room that is so far away is keeping it from being hyper-realistic as a spiritual experience, you know, keeping it more as viewership rather than participation. Yeah. Um, you
1: know, I, I, I said that uh, that spirituality doesn't always come as easily and naturally to me, and it's hard. I need the work to get it to really feel like something. Um, community, though, does. Um, I'm somebody who's fully bought into the idea of being in community, and so I can watch services from some other place, you know, and listen to uh, a clergy person who I respect, but I have no. I have no sense that like I'm not going to go back to my community because I can watch from my pajamas. Like that—that's not appealing to me at all. The second I can go back safely to Shul, I'm going to do that because I'm fully bought in. What I worry about is I worry about the people for whom Jewish community doesn't come automatic, right? For whom it's more of a lift to think, "Yeah, I'm going to get dressed and go." Um, And if they have the option to do it in their PJs. That, that might be a harder thing to overcome, to to overcome that inertia to, to go after a year or whatever it will be of this experience.
0: Yeah, I remember having a conversation exactly about that and the mikvah. You know, what happens when you make it possible for people to do a ritual that always required you to go somewhere? Uh, what, what happens when it becomes possible and accessible even at home? And, and I'm... I'm picturing that little basement that you're describing from your home chavurah like mm-hmm. community. I'm wondering if anybody is meeting the success bar with some virtual version of that. You know, I wonder if there is a version of a rusty, uh, somewhat cobbled together lay led experience that's either happening or emerging. I don't think I've, I've I've seen that. Like, I do wonder if there's some sort mm-hmm. of a necessary polish to even get out there um or if there are people who are somehow achieving that uh in covid
1: um yeah i mean i think that there are certainly the synagogues that you know always had 60 people come who have 60 people on zoom and um i had the opportunity to to gig as a rabbi and virtual rabbi in residence from my bedroom at a local show that had a lovely turnout of, I think, 60 to 70, which was great. Um, But that wasn't aiming to be reaching thousands upon thousands. Um, And it felt warm and homey and nice. Um, I worry a lot though about the success metric is numbers and this, this was a problem before COVID and Zoom, but it's just heightened by COVID and Zoom, where you are succeeding if your numbers are going up, you're failing if your numbers are going down, and we're all competing for you know who has these these numbers and what numbers count as success. So, you know, is it possible to count a community as successful if it is meeting the needs of 50 people? Can that be a successful community? Um, for those 50 human beings or is it unsuccessful because it's not reaching 5,000 and how are we going to readjust our expectations right I'm I'm hearing from you know I I talked to friends at another show who said you know we had 10,000 people join us for high holidays virtually so next year God willing when we're back to together please and they have a thousand people and their sanctuary feels incredibly full, is it gonna be disappointing? Because last year we had 10,000. The numbers mess with our heads. And and it, if we're a tradition that believes that each person is worth an entire world, um, a, a, an image of God that, that has infinite value, um, then we need to act like that. And not entirely place our stock in how many humans, and place our stock at least a portion of it in how deeply are we serving the humans who are there.
0: It's a nice inversion of what you're saying about your relationship with online davening, because uh, in in a really funky way, maybe you would push back and challenge this, but it almost sounds to me like you realize that in a COVID world, your responsibility to show up is either different or maybe even lessened. Meaning mm. there's like a community building responsibility of showing up in a different way when you're in synagogue times, but mm. not in an ugly way, almost in a the way that you're painting it is like, it's not about the numbers, like the people for whom this is meaningful should show up because it's meaningful. And if it's not meaningful for me, then it doesn't mean that it's not working for someone. I don't know if you would push back and challenge that or if that works for you, you know, like you're compelled towards community davening and when there's not really an aspect of community to davening, like how much do I need to force myself to be there? If there's no chance of a spontaneous experience, if my kid can't wander, you know, the dirty carpet in the kiddish room, like what, what, um, what responsibility do I have to be in the room?
1: And nobody misses me. Nobody, yeah. right? That's that. Who that, That's what I'm hearing. What you're saying, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, who misses you when you're not there in one of your communities? They just assume you're davening at the other, <laughs> the other
1: Zoom. Room. at the other Zoom room, or you don't, you don't see, right? Like, right. um, you know, you know, from from being on the beam, and I've, you know, been in congregational settings where, you know, when I'm on the BIMA, I'm looking out to see who's there, and I'm also looking to notice who's not there. And if I notice that the person who always sits in that seat isn't there for three weeks, then I know that there's a chesed call to make, because like, they're in that seat unless there's something going on. And from the perspective of the person leading, davening in a webinar setting, you probably don't even know who's there. Maybe you do. And with one another, like if, if I didn't show up week after week after week after having consistently shown up for years, somebody would notice. Yeah. And, and you're right. Like I haven't been in the service that I usually attend in many, many, many months. And as far as I know, nobody has noticed. And that's kind of sad. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 this mix of sadness and also somewhat in agreement not to challenge your emotional reaction to it. I'm just also hearing in what you're saying, like, it's also a permission in this time from your community leaders, an understanding of exactly or at least resonating with them uh, of what you're saying, which is not everybody is going to be compelled to be there and not showing up doesn't necessarily mean that you're not okay, it might yeah. just mean you don't need to be there right now.
1: Yeah. And please don't don't misunderstand. And I don't want to put this out in the world to misunderstand. That's not a fault on either my clergy or my fellow congregants to say, why haven't you called me to notice? Um, it's more just the reality of the situation is, is that those consistent patterns that we got into, your usual seat at your usual time they haven't applied for the last nine months, and so we're not we're not seeing each other we're not held accountable to each other in the same way. we don't miss each other in the same way um all of it has been so dramatically challenged um you know, i just the you know I'm smiling as I said you know the the usual seat and the usual time you arrive as a non pulpit clergy person, I tend to arrive in shell um sometime. You know, between the fourth and fifth Aliyah, um, right? Like, I, I haven't been in shul for Shacharit in a very, very long time because I don't have to. Um, so, um, you know, people don't miss me if I'm not there at nine a.m. But if I'm not there by ten thirty, somebody might notice. Um, <laughs> and it's the it's the idiosyncrasies of Jewish communi- communal life that I think that I miss the most. It's it's not goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. It's not the form. It's not going through the prayer book and please turn to this page and this tune. It's the lady in the shul who distributes lollipops to the little kids and the um, person who always walks in late and the person who sings off key, but very loudly and the sort of hustle and bustle of it all. I miss the terrible kiddish food. Like that's that's the part that i miss because that's the part that feels most real
0: i remember a talk by uh david wong who's an author and a columnist he's often a a guest voice on podcasts from crack.com which is like Mm. cracked magazine turned into a, a podcast universe and i remember a comment that he made in a discussion maybe a year and a half ago about uh the virtue and value of belonging to community, and particularly religious community. And he described this one thing that's now coming back to me as you describe people missing one another in in seats, which is he said, one of the things that community has always been able to do is, if you're worried about somebody and their consumption of alcohol, and you're with them in person, you can smell it on their breath. That was his example. And that has stuck with me for like now at this point years, because now that I'm sitting in COVID it's come back to me a few times recently, I think about that. And I'm thinking about you and the clergy looking out from, from their seats and the, the visceral physical interactive ways that we notice that, you know, and I'm thinking about what you're describing in your students and in the classroom and what you miss about the community building there and what can be noticed and not yeah. noticed.
1: And I mean, I'm. Just, yeah, that's such a powerful truth um, that you just shared. And I think a little bit, I feel badly about kind of how unseemly that I've spent the last 45 minutes complaining about <laughs> feeling disconnected. When you know you're talking about privilege um, and the privilege of knowing, I also have the privilege of being really okay through all of this. Right? I I have a partner. I have a child. I have, you know, nobody, nobody calls to say that they, you know, miss seeing me in Shul. But the truth is, is I, I, I'm employed. Um, I can pay to keep the roof over my head. Uh, there's a lot about this time, which is inconvenient. But so far, Kenahura, it hasn't been tragic as it has been for so many other people. But what about all of those people for whom Shul is, is really a sanctuary? Right, where being together in community is the place where they're not alone. Um, the 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 delightful oddballs who find their way to our shoals also. Right, yeah. synagogues are places that take care of the people who don't always have a, a, a huge circle of support and a huge network of support. That's something wonderful. About This is a place where everybody is welcome, whether you are the most polished and put together or, or, or not. You're still welcome at the minion. And for those people, you know, this is really devastating. I am so fortunate. I am so lucky. I am so supported and connected. And I'm sad about the situation, but I'm not lonely on a regular basis. And for so many people, they are and and vulnerable. Um, and, and we can't be there for them right now in the same way.
0: Well, what you're describing sounds to me like the trouble of triage right now, which we're talking about a lot more now that the vaccines are becoming closer to available and available to some people. Um, I know Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner has written some really beautiful stuff about the Jewish ethics behind triage, but what you're describing is communal triage and the faults of the of the really healthy assumptions that Rabbi Adam Greenwald is probably fine, so I'm going to call call someone else first who I'm not sure even has lunch tomorrow or lives alone or they're over 90 or, 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 right? And so Jewish communities, not even a year into this crisis, in that crisis mode, are triaging who they're paying attention to. And when they sit and have their senior staff meetings and talk about who might be in need of attention – you might not rise to the top of the list yeah when you don't rise to the top of the list that can hurt
1: yeah I, and i think triage in a crisis is the appropriate response right um not everybody can have the vaccine first the the people who need it most need to get it first and the rest of us as much as we don't like waiting need to wait and And our our communities are being asked and our congregational clergy are being asked to lift a weight which is unliftable, unliftable. There is, nobody was prepared for a global pandemic shutting the world down for a year. Nobody had training in this. Everybody's had to figure it out as they go. And so, you know, I, I don't find any fault with any community just trying its best cuz i know everybody is working harder than ever and and i think we've got to be okay with the fact that nobody can meet all of the needs right now because we are living in an unprecedented impossible situation and i'm just i'm grateful that for all of the ways that the community has shifted so fast and the people have been so creative and so caring um even even when i'm aware of all of the lacks
0: yeah and to to begin to move towards that kind of final question of are you coming Back uh, to communal life, which you already referenced in a little bit earlier. I just want to create kind of a contrast here for you to reflect on, which is your description of what you're doing to create basically a mikdash maat in your home to like make sacred moments out of being with your kid and to notice first steps and first words and and to check in with your own gratitude about that. So trying to create that on your own, giving yourself permission to disconnect when it's just not doing it for you, to try to reconnect, and also your apparent eagerness to get back when you can get back. So I guess my first twist on the question is, even when you do go back, what's changed for you? What's shifted? What's cracked in this time that you think might change the person who does walk in during the fifth uh, Aliyah to your seat?
1: I don't fully know because i think that it's hard to both experience crisis and analyze crisis at the same time um, yeah. i think i'm i keep imagining getting that second shot right and like or, or hitting that 28 days after the shot or whatever is that you know the 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 goalpost just keeps moving but like that moment when i know that i'm going to be okay And more importantly, the moment in which my parents get it and in which my my wife gets it and in which like, and I feel like there's just so much stored up that I can't access right now until I know that everybody I love is gonna be okay. And and when, when that happens, there's gonna be a dam that's gonna break and there's gonna be a colossal reckoning and there's going to be a reckoning with this year or however long it is. And, you know, I love that you're convening this conversation now. And I think it's really important. And I think necessarily we're going to look back on it six months, 12 months, whatever it is, and say, you didn't really know <laughs> because we're still in it. Um, and it's only going to be when we come kind of out the other side that we can start to process Um, what this means and how we've changed. So I have some, I know that I'm eager to get back to community. I know that this experience isn't just going to get forgotten and be like, Oh, that was a crazy year. Um, (laughs) it's going to continue to be something to be reflected on and written on and thought about for a very, very long time. Um, but it's it's hard to guess right now, what that's going to be from the other side. I don't. Know, does that resonate with you? Do you feel do you feel that? It
0: does. It does. It, I I do feel like it's impossible to know right now. And you know, full transparency for the most part, I'm not asking this question of my congregants because I don't think they're ready to answer it. But I do think that even if we don't have answers, that Jewish thought leaders and those who lead community. In their spare time, basically, right or in their professional time, they're leading in their personal lives, they're not uh, I think we're we're trying to to circle around it, and I guess my my big question in response to the way that you outlined it, which I don't disagree with, right? I think it's not possible to know now. The question is how much agency you feel to actually imprint upon whatever is quote unquote created in this era? Like, do you feel like you're shaping and building something new when you welcome people from Saudi Arabia and Japan into your classes or when you, you know, become a different kind of dad? Um, do you feel like you're you're creating a new reality or do you feel like it's happening to you for the most part?
1: Um, I think this whole experience is an experience of learning that we're not in control. Which is hard, <laughs> and we're not in control. And this business of you know, I can't can't number the number of times I've said I am so done with this virus, um, so done with this, so done with this. And the truth is, it's not done with us. And whether I'm done with it or not <laughs> is unimportant. Um, so, so I I don't feel victimized by that. I don't think we're victims of that, but I do think there is a, a relinquishment of of control um, and my mother 's a social worker, and I bought her for a mother 's day at some point when I was in high school. a print that I found um, with a picture of a of a boat on it and it says we can't uh, we can 't change the wind, but we can redirect the sails um, and it 's one of the few. Uh, kid gifts that she's kept. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure she's kept the rest of them in boxes, but this actually has remained out. Cause I think, I think that that's true. Like we, we do have agency to direct the sales and, and and that's what people have been doing all the way through this and adapting in all sorts of amazing ways. And the wind is the wind and it's going to be what it's going to be. And, and we get to shape it and we're also going to be changed by it if, one of one of my favorite discussions in the Gemara, to be rabbinic for a second, is the discussion about what to do with your kriya, with your torn garment um, after the the period of Shiva. You know, do you mend it like it never was there, or do you leave it permanently torn? Um, and the answer that the rabbis come up with, if memory serves, is that um, you can sew it up, but you sew it up with loose stitches. Um, right? You can't mend it like it was never there and you don't leave it permanently torn forever, Um, you scar your garment. um, Because the change that's been affected by um, grief, and we are living in a time of massive communal grief, uh, is a permanent change. And so, you know, we will stitch back our communities in the, that will resemble the way that they once were, and they won't be perfectly back to the way that they once were. Like there will be a Kriya scar from this year. And that's, that's as it needs to be.
0: I think that that's a a beautiful, if challenging note to end this conversation on, because I, I feel the way that that particular beautiful and wrenching metaphor fits in so nicely with this idea that it's impossible to be examining this year, really, while we're still in it. You can't know what the scar is going to look like while you're still experiencing the wound, so to speak. Uh, and uh, it doesn't mean you don't feel anything right now. It's just that we won't know what the scar looks like until we're out of it and and can uh, look back on it. So I, I am so grateful to you for this deep dive uh, into really personal and spiritual territory, but with the, the gorgeous... Um, thoughtfulness that you bring to being a professional who cares for other Jews and for other Jews, spiritual lives. Um, thank you for that. And I look forward to more chances to connect over, um, hopefully happy times.
1: Happy times for sure. Thank you. You are as always a, a just a wonderful Neshama and wonderful to be in conversation with and in spiritual and collegial partnership with, uh, this was really, um, I don't necessarily want to say it was fun because it was a little bit wrenching, but uh, <laughs> it was it was good. It was good. And I'm so grateful to be to be invited. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Are You Coming Back? Do you have someone you'd like to recommend for a conversation like this one? Someone who might have a fascinating personal perspective on returning to Jewish rhythms beyond the pandemic?
1: Reach out to us at hchorny at tbala.org.